You're listening to The 66 Podcast, where we study the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser, as always, and we are moving right through our study of 1 Timothy, and today we're going to be in chapter 5. And Drew, this is something you pointed out just a second ago before we hit record. This chapter is very structured. It's pretty easy to read this chapter and come up with a good outline, I think, when you get done with it, uh, because there are little sections that are obviously uh, about different things. And we have said before, last week, actually, no, 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 not last week. It was back in uh, when we talked about chapter 3. Um, we were talking about the household of faith. But I think last week we talked about it as well. So this letter, yeah, a lot did. of this letter is devoted to Paul telling Timothy, you know, how to behave in the household of faith. That word household obviously is going to make you think of your family. Uh, how do you behave in your family? And right here in chapter 5, we're going to get a lot of instruction on how to treat people that serve in different you know, roles in the family. We're going to see uh, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Uh, but in particular, Drew, you pointed out that this chapter uh, talks a lot about those older people. So we're titling our, our uh, lesson today, Respect Your Elders, and Drew has our outline. Yeah, uh, so something interesting to tie it into last chapter. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 is known for that instruction in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but be an example. So we're kind of seeing the other side of the coin now. Uh, Timothy is told, don't let anybody despise you for being young. And then he's, it's like he's wanting to balance it out a little and say in chapter 5, well, don't despise the older people either. Right. So, you know, yeah. so if chapter 4 was about respecting young people, chapter 5 is about respecting the elderly or the older, more experienced members, however yeah, you want to look point. at it. And there are basically three groups. Not to say that this is the full scope of elderly people in a church, but there are basically three groups that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, the older members in general widows, and the elders. I'm talking about the, the office of the elders. And so we're going to break our reading down into those three categories, starting with the older members. That's verses 1 and 2 that Andrew was just talking about. Do not rebuke an older man. Now, some translations say elder. Don't think here of the office of the elder. That's not who he's talking about in chapter 5, verse 1. He's talking about older people in general. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, I think that was his main point there, but that sends him on a, a little caveat saying, uh, as for younger men, brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Timothy's a young man. He needs to show honor to the ladies of the congregation. And one of the best ways that he can do that mentally you know, I'm thinking maybe Tim Timothy is single. Uh, that's very likely, I think. And one of the ways that, that he can get his mind right towards these women in the congregation is to think of them as he would his own mother, who we know that he greatly respected, mm -hmm. as sisters if they're younger. And so generally he's saying, uh, you know, respect the elderly, uh, don't don't uh, or, or show them the honor that you want to don't don't compromise your purity uh, that brings us to the second very large portion of this chapter 
that goes from verses 3 through 16 about widows. Now, there are two categories of widows here that you need to watch out for. There are the true widows. That's who we're reading about in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. And you may see that and say, well, you know, either they're a widow or not. It's, it's not that hard to tell the difference. You'll see what he means in just a moment. He'll, he'll qualify true widows for us. And then there are the young widows who, you know, have their life in front of them. Uh, they may remarry. They may have children. You know, they, yeah. they have a chance to start over, as it were. So um, the, the controversy that he's addressing here has to do with the payroll of the church. I don't know any other way to put that, but you see this language uh, throughout this chapter with regard to the true widows, uh, such as in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Uh, and that's going to be very important for us to keep in mind. Uh, this uh, this first group here, uh, well, it's not the first group. We talk about older members in general, but the, the first specific group, uh, is very closely related to the payroll of the church, whether or not they should be taken on as a response, a financial responsibility for the church. And so um, he says in verse 3 that the church does have this responsibility to honor them. Uh, but he qualifies the ones who are true widows. And uh, the, I'll just read through these very quickly. So uh, starting verse 5, we have these qualifications. She it, it she has to be left all alone. In other words, she doesn't. She's not dependent on anybody. There's nobody to care for her. No children or grandchildren there, etc. Um, also, she cannot be self-indulgent. That's what he means when he says in verse six, "She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Uh, these have to be honorable widows who will, you know, do some service in exchange for being cared for in the church. And they have to be, you know, trustworthy. Uh, they need to have their hope fixed on God. Um, they need to uh, continue in prayer. Those are in verse 5 as well. If you go on down to verse 9, he says they should be over the age of 60, uh, the wife of one man, which is an interesting turnaround from the qualification for elders that we get in First Timothy 3, 2, husband of one wife. Uh, she has to have, of course, at this time, she doesn't have a husband, and this verse has been twisted. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit in the next segment. But um, what he's basically saying is that she didn't remarry after her first husband died. Mm -hmm. Assuming a lifetime is only long enough for two husbands, that's not always the case, but she decided to stay unmarried, which was her right, mm -hmm. and so she needs help. Um, verse 10, she has to have a good reputation for good works. And then he gives a list of these good works, uh, rearing children, uh, being hospitable, washing feet, helping the distressed, being devoted to good works. I think that whole list there is related to the good works that she needs to be responsible for. Yeah. And so um, those are what he means by true widows, those who are completely left alone, um, who have nobody to care for them, over the age of 60, not planning to remarry and who have a record of good works yeah. of their life. And I want to point out real quick, I think probably a lot of us will recognize this practice of, you know, basically you mentioned this is really about the payroll of the church uh, yeah. supporting them. You might recognize this from Acts chapter 6, 
uh, where some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's in Acts 6, uh, verse 1. And that's where, you know, uh, they appoint those who we call, you know, deacons. Uh, right. There in Acts 6. Is the seven the first, men, yeah. yeah uh, to so take this care is of that. All so. the way back to the beginning, you know, that that's in the very first church. Mm-hmm. And the problem was racial, really, or ethnic or national. Uh, you had some Hellenistic or Greek widows who were being overlooked in mm-hmm. the city of Jerusalem where the majority of the population were Jewish. Yeah. And they solved that problem, but evidently other problems have arisen. You know, we'll probably talk about this more, but um, I'll throw it out there right now. We all need to recognize that a church's resources, like the resources of a business or a family, are limited. There's only so much financial responsibility a church can take on, especially if it's not a part of a big denominational hierarchy. It's just a congregation independent of other congregations. There's only so much it can take on. And so Paul is trying to do the will of the Lord towards destitute widows, at the same time not straining the church so much that it can do nothing but take care of widows. So that's what all these are about. Now under this heading of widows, he does bring up the younger widows, for a lack of a better term, and uh, their responsibilities, and he has a few things to say about them. Basically, this is all under the heading of they should not be on the church payroll. Uh, he says, right. you know, so this is not necessarily related, related to their youth, but um, in verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents for this pleasing in the sight of God. So first of all, you look at the home. And if there are children there who are earning a living, grandchildren who can take care of of mom, uh, they need to do that. That's their responsibility. In fact, he says, he he basically says, you know, your mother took care of you when you were growing up. Now it's your turn to pay for that. That's the language there. You've Mm -hmm. got to, you know, the bill has come up due and it's time to give a return or a payment for what has been given to you. And it's just a play on words. I mean, that's, the parents aren't taking care of their children so that they have a retirement plan on down the road. That's, yeah. that's not what he's saying. But he's trying to make it very clear that your parents took care of you. You should take care of them. In fact, in verse 8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So he's taking the strain off the church by saying, Look, first let's look to the children and the grandchildren and not burden the church. In verse 16, he says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So all of this is about distinguishing the younger widows or the widows with a family from the true widows in terms of their destitution. Um, Now, he explains why the younger widows don't fit into this. Maybe there's younger widows that don't have children to take care of them. He still doesn't want them on the payroll. He says in verse 11, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. That, that's a difficult passage that we will certainly come back to and try to, try to explain a little bit. Right now, I just want you to see it's very clear that uh, he doesn't want the church to take on that responsibility. 
He mentions their sensual desires in verses 6 and 7, and their tendency to become idle, or worse than that, become gossips. And so he feels that they need to be busy, uh, maybe due to their lack of experience in life in general. They're younger. They're, they you know, are susceptible to those kinds of temptations. God's will is for these young women to do several things. Verse 14, uh, marry, bear children, which is better rendered rear children, raise children, uh, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Uh, so you have that. So that, that basically is the section on widows, namely older widows who are true widows, destitute and in need of support from the church. Let's go to the third category. You know, we talked first of all about older members in general, then widows. The third category is the elders. And he says of them in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, The scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Um, he's talking here about another payroll. You know, this time it's the elders on the payroll. Already we're seeing a difference between, anyway, the, the church that you and I experience. Um, you know, we have, what, four employees on the payroll here? Um, mm-hmm. You and I as secretary and custodian, and that's it. And it seems like the early church had far more than that. Of course, this may have been a rather large congregation in Ephesus. We're not really sure how big it was. But the elders there, especially the ones who ruled well, were receiving pay. Double honor for those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, After he talks about that, in verse 19, he tries to communicate some of his wisdom to Timothy regarding how to handle problems with the elders, how to handle church discipline with the elders. We often don't think about the elders being disciplined, but they're human like anybody else. And I suppose there are occasions, albeit rare, where an elder needs to be rebuked. But Timothy has to be very careful about taking that into his own hands. He is a young man. He needs to learn respect for his elders, both in the general sense and in the official sense. Mm -hmm. And so he says, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as for those who persist in sin, the the elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that he may rest, uh, so that the rest may stand in fear. So be very careful about that. Don't read that as if it is emphasizing disciplining the elders. What he's emphasizing is restraint yeah. in disciplining the elders. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks a little bit about selection and appointment of elders and being careful with that. Uh, to Timothy, he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, that was a way that churches and preachers and elders would show approval and confirmation to an office or to a mission. You see that kind of thing going on in Acts 13 when yeah. Paul and Barnabas are going on their first missionary journey in the church at Antioch. They're laying their hands on them. And I know that language is often used of imparting spiritual gifts, but here it, it's Knowing Timothy and what his role was and what was going on there and what we've been talking about, uh, this is not to impart spiritual gifts. It's to to confirm an elder as he is being appointed. 
so he says, don't be hasty to appoint elders, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, Timothy, if you are hasty to appoint a man that you like or you just really need an eldership here or there, and you appoint these men to this office, you're part and parcel to their sin. You know, you're complicit yeah. in, in their sin when it's found out later. You are responsible for doing that, so be careful about that. Uh, he throws in this parenthetical statement, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, the sins of some men, back on this problem of appointing men too too hastily, the sins of some men are conspicuous. That means, you know, they're widely known and seen, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Again, don't be hasty. Look into their lives and, and make sure that they have been tested. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There's a great day coming, is what he's saying. And uh, nobody notices good works, they'll be revealed in the last day. Nobody notices evil works, they will be revealed in the last day. But all of that, I know it seems to get off track a little bit, but it all fits, even the stomach aches that Timothy had, perhaps. They all fit into this responsibility of Timothy to appoint elders in Ephesus and, and I guess in other places as well, and being very careful about that. Mm-hmm. in his role as preacher or evangelist there. Um, so that's as far as I wanted to get with the reading, unless you've got something you would like to add to to that. No, you know, I think that, I think you've done a great job of covering it. So just to wrap Thank up. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. So it's just, nice to be recognized for one time. Yeah. Um, would you just, lay your hands on me? Just trying to respect my elders here. Oh, um, <laughs> see, I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> I knew I've been trying was. to think of a good way to work that in this whole time, and I just haven't. Uh, but just to, just to recap, uh, and you can tell me if I'm missing anything big here, but just for the short notes on this chapter, we have uh, basically it's Paul's admonition to Timothy on how to treat older people. There's some things about you know, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers, but the right. emphasis lies upon how to treat widows, which have to be 60 or older, right? Right. So a lot of that instruction comes from there. There's a little bit about the younger widows, uh, but then also how to treat elders, elders of the church specifically, but then also just older men in general as well. Yeah, that about sums it up. Okay. So that gives us a good foundation. I think we're going to have a real interesting discussion as we come back after the break. Okay, so as we come back to dig a little bit deeper and to maybe think a little bit harder about what's here in 1 Timothy 5, first thing I want to look at, Drew, uh, is some of these qualifications for the widows to be enrolled, uh, like you said, in order to receive support from the church. It's interesting coming off of that study we did in chapter 3 of qualifications for elders and qualifications for deacons. Now we have qualifications for widows. Yeah. So it's like true a... True widows. Or, yeah. For those who are truly widows, um, I think the NIV says for those who really are widows or something like that. Yeah, the American Standard says widows indeed. 
Ah, uh, yes. Widows, indeed. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, it's interesting to look at this because we get at we get into these qualifications of elders and deacons, and we you know, say, well, we got into that big discussion about you know, what if an elder has been married and you know his wife dies and remarries and still a woman. We talk a lot about that. Yeah. But we have something. We have the flip side of that here with the widows. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if, so here comes the qualification, she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And there's even more here, Drew, I forgot to mention this one too. Having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So those are the the qualifications there. And there's two that I want to just spend a couple minutes talking about, not a ton of time. But it does say that she needs to be the wife of one husband, which is the inverse you mentioned in our section on reading it. It's the inverse of the one woman man we read from chapter three. This is a one man woman, or literally a woman of one man. Yeah. Uh, so the question there would be, well, let's say we have a widow who needs support in the church but she's been married and then she became a widow and then she got married again and then she became a widow again. So, and and, you know, you bring up the child rearing part of that too. It, mm -hmm. it, if you're not careful, you'll think Paul is being insensitive and you'll forget Mm -hmm. that Paul never married or had children himself. So he knows what it's like to go through life without children even without a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's there's more here between the lines that we have to deduce from the text to this in other words, this these two qualifications don't make any sense unless there is a specific scenario addressed by Paul that's hinted at but not spelled out for us. Mm-hmm. And that scenario the best way I can put it is in Widows getting on the payroll, they are taking on a job with specific duties. Duties Mm -hmm. related to these qualifications of having been married, having raised children, etc., having to do these good works. I mean, the the rearing of children is an example of the kind of good works she will have needed to have done in order to to serve in this capacity. So they're not just being supported, is what I'm saying, while they sit at home and do nothing— we would say they were hired, but yeah, Paul doesn't like that language, and I don't either. It's it's a you know maybe there's a give and take here, and he uses the language of give and take with regard to children taking care of their parents in verse four. Well, there's a give and take here that's not spelled out for us, but it basically is this idea that if you're a widow supported by the church, you're going to be doing some of the work of the church full time because you can. Yeah. You have your health. And you have financial support. You don't have a family to take care of at home anymore. Mm-hmm. And so while you're here, why not use this as a way to glorify God rather than a way to become idle and get into trouble or whatever? Yeah. Now, if that's the scenario, then it no longer seems insensitive for Paul to say she needs to have had experience raising children. Yeah. She, you know, I, I know ladies who aren't widows because they never married. And so they don't have children either who are in need of care. And I think 
the church probably took care of folks like that as well, but Paul did not uh, want them to work in this capacity. He's addressing the specific situation of widows. Right. I was, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, that last point on, you know, what about, because I'm thinking, what about a lady who gets married and then, you know, they never have kids or if they can't have kids. Right. And then her yeah. husband tragically dies and she has no way to fend for herself, you know, back in these times. Um, you know, are we just going to kick her out to the curb? Did she have kids? No. All right. We're not supporting her. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, think that's. Yeah. I don't think that Paul would, would say, uh, you know, that woman's no good. You know, she, yeah. she deserves to die in the cold. I'm mm. sure that the church took care of her. But the problems surrounded the widows in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I don't think there was any problem with a, a woman in that situation. He was addressing a problem of a widow, and there were evidently a, several young widows who were using their tragedy to get on the payroll. And you know, throughout he's talking about idle tales, myths, genealogies, Jewish myths, mm-hmm. fitting only for. Old women. Yeah. He says, so Timothy has had to deal with something here that just hasn't been made plain to us. Yeah, and I think this idea of you know they're they're rec- they're being recognized and they're almost signing up to do some work. It explains this phrase. It could be a little difficult. Verses eleven and twelve refuse to enroll younger widows, so younger widows can't be involved in this. Because their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. So if you get younger women in there, they're going to want to get married again. Verse 12, and so incur condemnation. For getting married. Yeah. Is what it it sounds like. Yeah, for having abandoned their former faith. And we want to stop and mention here because this could create a problem when you get down to verse 14. You know, Paul explains why he says that in verse 13. He says, well... Here's why, because uh, they'll learn to be idlers. They'll go around from house to house. They'll start being gossips and busybodies. Busybodies, verse 14. So I would have younger widows to marry. Okay, so hang on a second. So he just said, don't enroll younger widows because they're going to want to get married again. And then in so doing, they're going to incur condemnation. Yeah, for having abandoned their former faith. Right. And then he turns around and says, so I want them to get married. So I want them to marry. Yeah. But. And Drew, I think we talked a little bit about this before we mash record. Uh, the idea here is not, well, if you marry again after your husband dies, you have broken your faith in Christ. Like we yeah. said, for the widows to be enrolled like this, there's some official sense to it. And the idea, this is like a commitment from these women to say, right. okay, I'm going to be a widow. I'm going to serve the church in this capacity as a woman not having, you know, a family of my own, now that I'm a widow, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have any children to take care of me. I'm going to rely on the church, and in return, I'm going to do this work for them. Right. And I guess I'll throw in, this isn't a vow of celibacy like you see in the Catholic Church, although I'm sure that they would use this as an example. It's a contract saying I'm going to devote 100% of my time to good works in this particular congregation, which mm-hmm. is something that the church then and you know probably now really needs more full-time workers, male and female. Uh, you, you know there are orphans. There are probably far more orphans in that area then than there are now, and I think that's a big part of the work probably that he's talking about. Um, so they incur condemnation 
for breaking that contract, getting mm-hmm. married. The reason marriage is so bad in that situation, verses 11 and 12, is just because these are women who said that they were going to remain single so that they could do these special jobs that would be uh, that a family would distract her from. And then after taking the money and signing the papers, so to speak, she turns around and does what she said she wouldn't do. Yeah. She went back and got married. And Paul knows that younger widows are going to be doing that because they're human beings. And it's kind of like what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he's answering the question about whether or not a person should remain single. And he says in verse 1, you know, I would that they would be just, just as I am, single. But because of sexual immorality, let every woman have her own husband, let every husband have his own wife. And yeah. so he's saying, you know, marriage keeps us from committing sexual immorality. It's mm-hmm. it, it it's something younger people are very interested in. It's something that they want. So Paul's saying, you know, let's not even bother with putting the younger widows on the payroll because they're going to want to get married. They're going yeah. probably to want to have more children. And that family is going to be such a responsibility. She won't be able to do what I'm intending for widows to do in the church. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great way to explain it. And just to add one more little thing to it, uh, this word for faith here, uh, where it says they've abandoned their former faith, can also be translated as a pledge. Um, the NIV yeah. translates it that way because one of the verbs that's connected to it uh, in the Greek, a lot of times when those pop up together, that word that's translated faith, which is the word for faith that shows up everywhere, uh, yeah. sometimes it can mean pledge uh, when it's associated with that other verb, uh, not to bore people and get too deep into that. but Well, it, it does make it more palatable. You know, yeah. when, instead of saying they've abandoned their faith, and like you pointed out, that's obviously not what Paul is saying because of uh, verse 14 where he says, I want them to marry. So, yeah, he, yeah I think so. I think we've hashed that out pretty good. Um, yeah. Okay, so the next thing that we have here on the docket, Drew, is the double honor of elders. So are we talking about, because I read 17. this. Yes. And I'm thinking there's a couple ways to read it. Just to remind everybody, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I'm thinking we can interpret this in one of two ways. Or we can, you know, there's one of two points trying to be made here. Maybe it's both of them. Um, but we either give them double honor as in honor and respect, you know, just uh, for their character. Or number two, this double honor implies some kind of payment to be made to these men. Well, I think you put them together and you get the double honor because okay. those two options you gave it by themselves are single honor. You okay. know, so he's talking about, number one, the honor of chapter five, verse one. You know, the respect that you show naturally to older people. And the second honor is the money, the payment. And there's no question that's what he's talking about because of verse 18. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And this is a verse Paul used in 1 Corinthians 9 when he's talking about preacher's pay. Yeah. And and how he waived his right to receive that, but it's it's a responsibility of the church to give that. Uh, he was a tent maker, so he could, you know, furnish his own expenses, but not everybody can do that. Yeah, and I think added to that, the context of, hey, we're talking about 
which widows we're going to enroll and basically hire and which mm-hmm. we're not going to. Yeah, I you think, just finished that conversation. So. Yeah, so I, I, I'm right. with you 100% on that. I definitely think the double honor has to do with both. Well, the only reason we get confused about it is because in the Churches of Christ, uh, we rarely do that. I, I know some cases where elders are fully supported, uh, but they're mm-hmm. few and far between. Yeah, now, and that brings me right into this next question I have for you. Um, so I think typically most of, and not all, but I, I know most of the elders I know that have been, you know, that are supportive for their work, they do a lot of preaching and teaching, um, which is yeah. the very next Which is phrase. what it says. Yeah. yeah, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I think sometimes, and maybe this is just my experience, so I don't want to say, you know, everywhere for everybody. I do think sometimes there's kind of eyebrows raised if there's a minister who gets older into the point of his life where he's, you know, old enough to be an elder and he gets appointed as an elder. And I know a lot of places, you know, that happens and there's no, you know, there's no um, raised eyebrows. But for some reason, you know, I have this in my mind that if when a preacher comes into the eldership, some people are like, well, I don't think a preacher ought to be an elder. Or, you know, I don't know why they talk like that, but they do. <laughs> depends on what part of the world they're from. Yeah, that's how they sound in my head. Um, well, so, I, I think we do that because we have built a somewhat artificial system. I mean, it's our it's up to the church's discretion how to handle this. So when I say artificial, I'm not saying it's wrong or unscriptural. I'm just saying we all lean towards the same model that is mm-hmm. not necessarily a revealed model that has to be followed in every circumstance, but we've all known it all our lives, and so we think that this is true. Now, what is the model? The model is this. You have volunteer, that's not the best word for it, elder, unpaid elders who are serving, um, you know, without any pay in return. They're working Mm-hmm. And earning their own keep like like Paul did. It's their right, their privilege to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a great gift to the church when they do that. Yeah. But they're doing that, and they decide the salary for the ministers. And that's almost everywhere that's the, the way that it is done, because ministers are submissive to the elders, or they should be. And, uh, you know, most churches say, well, that includes the pay. So here's the problem. If we appoint this man who is also our preacher as an elder, how are they going to handle his salary? You know, that's what oh, it, yeah. all, that's what it boils down to. I guess there are some other concerns about whether he would have too much power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose there are preachers out there that are in it for the power. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't think that's a huge problem. I think. People are, you know, I don't think there's a preacher who's going to want to sit in on the meeting about and help weigh in on his salary and hold yeah. up a meeting and say, you know, I'm an elder too, and I get this bonus or I get this raise because I'm an elder as well as a preacher. I don't see that. I've never heard of that happening. Yeah, I can just see one of these guys walking into a meeting. Well, I think we ought to give our minister a 100% raise this year. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just think right. about that. I want to pay him $3 million a year. Yeah, uh, which I think, but you know, that, that's what everybody's hesitant about, right? I mean, that's what they're worried about is. I, yeah, I think I understand that hesitation a little more now because, I, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that. 
to be honest with you. So, oh, really? Yeah. You were thinking maybe he would have too much power as preacher slash yeah, elder? I was thinking that was where most of the concern was. And I think about this guy's going to have to determine, you know, he's a part of determining his own salary, which could, if you have a guy who's not really qualified to be an elder, I think you get into that problem. So I think if that's a well, problem... we're assuming we're talking about a qualified man. Yeah. But I think that would, you know, in my mind, if he's going to be greedy for that kind of gain, you know, and it's one thing Which to makes be, him disqualified as an elder. Yeah, greedy for dishonest gain. I think that would put him out of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, without getting too much into, well, what if he's, you know, what if his family's really struggling and he needs a little more and he's just, you know, but we don't want to... Well, one way one way that you could do it is I'm not trying to work myself out of a job, but if it if it, you're in a church where you have this, you could just have an eldership and no preacher and have two or three or maybe the whole eldership take turns preaching and teaching yeah. in the church. That's the way they do it on the mission field. Right. That's the way I've seen it done in Eastern Europe and the way it's done in many places in Africa and many places in South America. Um, you know, I'm, preachers are important, but if you've got elders who can preach in a local setting, uh, then you could take care of this whole issue about just pay them all and let them all preach, and then nobody has more power. You know, I, those two problems yeah. are taken care of there. Uh, there. There are always going to be there are problems with the current model mm-hmm. of um, elders deciding the salary of the preacher. You know, there's some yeah. problems with that. Uh, I don't want to get into them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, okay, I'm not experiencing these problems, but I could conceive of the problems, problems arising from that kind of situation. Yeah. But not with me. Yeah. Not with me. Um, Maybe for Andrew, but not for me. No, I'm doing, we're we're okay here. We're not trying to complain about our current situation. Uh, But let me say this before we leave this. Uh, Would, it's a question. Would the church be better off if we paid more elders? You know, I should say if we supported more elders to free them up from having to spend the majority of their time on a career or a livelihood. Yeah. If they had, like we have the privilege of having, which is just a wonderful thing that we can spend all of our time on the church. Oh, yeah. I mean, elders generally don't get to do that. What if they could? I think of it like this. I mean, think of how many elders you know of that do such a great job as an elder. And how many of those, you know, are, they do work full time. You know, they have their own families to worry about at home. They've got a lot of other obligations in their life. Imagine how much more they could do if, you know, that whole career side of it was not a part of the equation. You know, right. imagine yeah. how much, and I'm not. You see retired elders doing that kind of thing because they, yeah. they're drawing their pension or Social Security or whatever. And so it does they can give spend them, more time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying, you know, uh, you know, elders everywhere who have jobs are doing a bad job, so they need to quit their job. I'm saying there are elders out there who do great work as an elder, and they, they do a really good job of balancing their responsibilities but, you know, they would be able to do more just simply because they'd have more time. I would, so to answer your question, I mean, I would, I think the church would benefit from having more elders that are given that blessing, you know, given that opportunity 
um, and to be able to put on, their whole focus on. It depends on the church too. I mean, yeah. does the church have the financial ability to do that? Yeah. Uh, does the church already have four retired elders, you know, or whatever? Yeah. You know, some churches, all the elders are retired. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that it should take on the support for those men. I'm not saying that's wrong either. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this, you know, to bring in just another thing, I think this is something the church should think about with regard to retiring preachers. Yeah. I mean, you've got some of the greatest, most qualified elders in the world holding a pulpit until they're in their mid-80s yeah. because they don't have a retirement. You know, they don't have a retirement plan or they've got Social Security and it's the check's just not big enough for them to live on. Yeah. And so they're, they're continuing to preach and they're having health problems and their wives are having health problems and it's just hard. What if the church said, you know, step aside into this role and we'll support you in a way, we'll give you a retirement in exchange for it kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, and you think about, you know, what qualifies somebody to be an elder it must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control. We've already talked about all those things. Um, there are a lot of qualifications that we don't do this as a, you know, as a as a command. But how many ministers, how many elders do you know that hire a minister that don't look at that list of qualifications and think, hey, we're going to have a man that's going to be doing a lot of leadership in our church? You know, I I just feel like there aren't that many ministers out there who would not fit the qualifications, you know, oh, at elders. least by the time they reach the age we're talking about to where, you know. They would have to be married and have children yeah, who are yeah. believers. All those things considered. You know, I'm just thinking of, you know, who's better qualified, keeping in mind, you know, that those qualifications, like we said, are, are being kept. Who's better qualified to serve as the leader of a church other than somebody who's been working in and with church leadership for decades, you know, maybe yeah. 40 years by this point, mm-hmm. you know, how much experience do you need mm-hmm. uh, until you're, you know, I'm just thinking of the, the value that an elder like that can bring. Cause this is somebody who has probably seen almost everything that there is to see if they've been working in church leadership for 40, 50 years, they've had to handle difficult things. They can come in, they can handle it and maybe a way better than they saw it handled last time or better than the way they handled it last time, 20 years ago when it came up. So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's being done. I've I've met several elders who were preachers until they reached retirement age. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I really think churches should think about this kind of thing more um, out of respect for elders who are currently serving and mm-hmm. include the retiring preachers as well. But, you know, when you start thinking about what an elder does, trying to take care of his family, raise money to live on, and then giving his whole weekend basically to, you know, taking care of the affairs of the church mm-hmm coming to meetings, uh, preparing Bible classes, preparing sermons, preparing, um, you know, making visits, doing a hundred other things in addition to that. Mm -hmm. And then Monday morning, getting up early in the morning, going back to work. You think about that kind of life. Some some men have been doing that for years and years and years 
with yeah. no pay and very little gratitude. And so the emphasis here is on, you know, honoring these men. Don't forget double honor. We're not just talking about pay here, but also the respect. Right. Um, and we're running out of time. Yeah, there's so much we could say about, you know, giving honor to elders and all those things. So, we'll, but we'll have to put a pin in it here. Here's the last thing. And I almost don't even want to talk about it now because we've <laughs> had such a good discussion about the double honor for elders. But, okay, so the last thing that probably a lot of people heard and that maybe you've thought of before as you've read this, verse 23, where... Oh, boy. Yeah, sorry. Uh, where Paul's talking to Timothy. Now, I do think it's interesting to keep verse 22 in mind. So verse 23, everybody knows it. For the sake of your stomach, uh, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your frequent ailments. Now, I think that needs to be taken in context with the whole yes. of what's going on. Because verse 22... He said, the last thing he says is keep yourself pure. Now, Paul has already given Timothy instructions to stay away from wine and remember the teachings of these false teachers here uh, with Timothy. Uh, We've already noticed that they might have a lot of asceticism Mm -hmm. in their teachings, basically saying, you know, uh, everything that's uh, fleshly is is unholy and it will defile your body. So you can't get married. You can't eat certain foods. And I'm sure maybe in that list is you can't even have wine. But so I think there's two considerations here. Number one, Timothy is probably trying to do what, what a lot of us do and to say, well, he says, you know, don't drink a little wine. I'm not going to drink any wine at all. I'm going to stay above reproach. I'm going to stay totally away from it. And that's fine. And that's good. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. So, so right there, let me stop you right there. Already we see that even in the first century when wine wasn't as potent as it is today, mm-hmm. even then, uh, men like Tim- Timothy make, made a decision to stay away from it altogether. Yeah. Be- even at the cost of his health. Yeah. Okay. It, Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I and I think that's, that in there. I, well, and I think that's great. And I think that's exactly, you know, I think Paul would agree with his reasoning for that in some ways to where Paul, you know, says if it, it's going to cause my brother to stumble to eat meat or drink wine. I'm not going to do either one of those things. Yeah. Um, so that's probably where Timothy's coming from. Uh, and then the second consideration is, you know, there might have been a little bit of Timothy. I don't know. Maybe he was portraying some of those teachings of the false teachers of, you know, maybe some people took that abstinence as a, well, you know, we, we can't defile our bodies with something. I think that's a little less a little less of a consideration in the first one. But I read that today, and I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, what if he's... Well, think about... I want to get back to what you're saying about verse 22. So it's all about selecting and appointing elders, deacons. Right. And he's saying, don't be hasty to do that. And he's saying that because it's possible that you could appoint a sinful person. And if you appoint a sinful person, then you're complicit in that sin. Because now you've given him power that he doesn't need to have. Yeah. So keep yourself pure. And then Paul remembers the young man that he's talking to. He he puts the person in play. You know, he sees the person receiving the instruction. It's Timothy. Mm-hmm. And if you tell Timothy to stay pure, he'll kill himself trying to stay pure. Yeah. So then he goes, now look, mm-hmm. you're, maybe there was some anxiety he was dealing with that made his stomach hurt. Or yeah. maybe he had a stomach ailment that from the water 
those are the two things that could have been treated with wine. Yeah. Because the only other beverage you had was was the wine in those days. So maybe maybe it was the bad water, or maybe it was the anxiety that he was feeling. We know that Timothy struggled, you know, with some some of that kind of stuff. And uh, whatever it is, he said, take a little wine. Just take take a little for your stomach's sake. What he's saying, he's saying here, take your medicine. They didn't have Pepto Bismol, yeah, or Imodium AD, or or you know, mm-hmm. I don't. They didn't they didn't have that. Yeah, no tums. You know, if your stomach's blowing up on you, you're pretty much in trouble. So yeah. he's saying, take your medicine, and today, with very few exceptions, if if any, we don't use wine as medicine. Wine is recreational, strictly recreational. Yeah. And if that's the case, there's no reason for us to to not abstain from it because of all the evils associated with alcohol. We need to stay away from it to maintain our purity, as Timothy was trying to, and staying off of wine, mm-hmm. and to um, set a good example, as Timothy was trying to do. Yeah. And we can go to Walgreens and pick up a bottle of Tums, and we're good. Yeah. I do not think he's telling Paul. I think you just explained it so well. Uh, well, I do too. I, but, <laughs> yeah. I do not think he's telling Timothy... Keep yourself pure. But you know what? You can drink a little bit every now and then. Hey, bottoms up, buddy. Yeah, I don't think yeah. he's saying, keep yourself pure, but hey, don't take it too far. You know, yeah, this have is one, of the, drink worst, every now it's and one of the worst proof texts. I mean, just, you know, I can drink. Look at 1 Timothy 5.23. Yeah, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. It says, it says there yeah, you go with the hill. They talk like that. Yeah. It says as much about not drinking as it says about drinking. I mean, why right. was Timothy not drinking it? Because there were problems associated with it. Paul had to give his apostolic authority on this to get the kid. And we don't know if he ever did. Kid. I don't know how old he was. Hey, we're almost out of time. So you want to skip the break and just go right into the practical stuff? Uh, That's fine with me. Yeah, sure. We got like 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. So I've got a a few of these. And again, we're not getting our typical. Let's just rapid fire. All right, here's rapid fire. Go through them. Uh, I think the most obvious application is relationships in the church. Uh, and in Ephesians 5, since we're almost out of time, uh, Paul sets this principle of submitting to one another, of showing each other honor. You see that in the first two verses of this chapter. So the way that we treat other people in the church, I think, is a huge application and is Paul's uh, motivation for writing to Timothy. So as Timothy reads this, his apply is, okay, I need to treat older men as I would a father. I need to encourage them, not rebuke them. Uh, older or younger men as my brother, older men as my mother, younger women as my sisters. So, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, what and more really, can you say about applying I mean, that? Man, the pres- I don't have sisters, but I know what he's talking about here. Mm-hmm. So it's just a great reminder to yourself on how to relate to people in the church and stay pure. Yeah. Um, how to respect your elders, how to respect those who are in your own age group. Um, yeah. And I think we're uh, talking really about, good. you know, I feel like if I had read this at 10 years old, I would have thought, okay, I treat everybody like my brother. And I go, I okay, this is, yeah, so yeah. I need to no, fight everybody. <laughs> this is assuming you have some maturity right. to understand what he's saying. All right, number two yeah. on my list here. And again, I have no idea what your list is, so I don't want to take all our short amount of time. Uh, self-indulgence, verse six, where it talks about the widow uh, who is self-indulgent. says she is dead even while she lives. Any thoughts to offer on why self-indulgence would make somebody dead even while they live? 
Well, because you're like an animal. You're just no. doing, you have no self-control and you you indulge your every whim and uh, you are spiritually dead when you live that way. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. All right, let me give you this one too. Uh, verse 21 uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. Uh, I think we see partiality a lot in our interactions with people at church, whether we realize we're doing it or not. Um, just, remember he's talking about appointing elders here too. Yeah, that's, that's like, true. Don't just appoint your buddies. Yeah. Look at the qualifications. I, I think that's the context anyway. Yeah, I think it is too. Uh, but is there anything to be said about that maybe in the way we treat each other in the church? or Yeah, definitely. You know. There's an application there, I would say, about mm-hmm. you know no prejudice, no partiality. Uh, you know, God is not a respecter of persons. We are his children. We shouldn't you know put one over the other either. It's not to say that we shouldn't have close friends. I oh, think yeah, we've talked right. about this on yeah, the podcast yeah. many times. Yeah, that's not what I intended. Um, my, what I'm thinking of here is, you know, we don't need to be partial to show, you know, maybe more, um, I don't know, more encouragement and love to some of those people that are close friends. You know, I don't think we should, if someone comes forward that's not in our group of close friends, we still need to go up there and say something to them, you know, not just, well, yeah. I don't really know them, so I'm not going to go encourage them. But I think, you know, regardless I think that's of... that's in there. Yeah, I, I just, I think we should keep it in the context, though, of, not not discriminating when you're appointing elders, yeah, or, or when you're rewarding elders, maybe also, yeah. or when you're rebuking elders. Yeah, that's so true. he's talking about rewarding elders, rebuking elders, and appointing elders, and all three of those cases, prejudice could be very bad. You yeah. can tend to reward the ones you like too much, rebuke the ones you don't like too much, mm-hmm. uh, appoint only people that you know will, you know, be your friends or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, okay, my last one here is in verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them in judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And that is to talk about, you know, the danger of having sins that will appear later. I think it's better to have some, <laughs> I think it's better to have our sins maybe being conspicuous yeah, going um, before us to judgment. Yeah, just a little quick note, and I was going to, you know, if we had time to bring this up, I was going to bring it up, if not. But just a little quick note on, you know, the sins appearing later. So there's no such thing as secret sin, and that is yeah, that's, that's that is point. taught so many times across Scripture. But here is another idea. Look, your sin might be secret now, but it's going to show up later. There is no such thing as a secret sin. It's going to catch up to you at some point. It's like First Corinthians 3 when Paul says, your works will be subjected to fire. And if they're yeah. gold, silver, bronze, they'll survive. If it's made of wood, hay, you know, it's going to be burned up, but it will be yeah. revealed in fire. One last thing, and I'm not too worried about us not elaborating on it today because it's going to come up again in Titus, which we plan to do soon. But just to whet your appetite for what is to come, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, in, this, in, in these instructions... Younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. The word that he used, let me see if I wrote it down. Uh, okay, the literal rendering, uh, the, li- the literal meaning of the word translated manage is be the house despot. I kid you not. Despot meaning like the, the ruler. 
Yeah. And it's in a bad connotation these days. But he's saying to the women, you have authority in in matters regarding your household. So it's not just mm-hmm. being a good housekeeper. But it she has kind of a leadership when it comes to the home and its arrangements, its management. And husbands, when they come home, ought to respect that. It doesn't mean... She does all the work at the home. It means that she runs the home. That's what it means. And he yeah. says it again in Titus with different language, but he says it in Titus 2.5. Yeah. So uh, we, we need to talk about that because we, we, you know, we talk all the time about um, men are the head of the household, husbands the head of the wife. And you know, all of that is, is true when you put it in context and you see what he means by being the head or being the authority. It's loving them like Christ loved them, uh, dying, being willing to sacrifice yourself, to die for something, affirming their lives, uh, leading the way, making sacrifices. That's that's what he means. Um, and we talk about the submission of women so much that we forget that they have leadership responsibilities and management responsibilities. And this is one example. And uh, the language is just so interesting. I had to point that out because... Yeah. It's it's it didn't have that connotation then, but now you know when you hear a house despot, yeah. it's, it's a very strange way for the words to come together, and it has a very remarkable idea there. Yeah, well, I think we have we have exhausted all of our time and then some, um, but we're we're glad that you're listening to us. If you'd like to give us any feedback, as always, positive. Feedback goes to A. Kingsley at ARCOC. Negative goes to D. Kaiser at ARCOC.com. By the way, that's .com. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. And we are on the Internet on our own website. So if you type us into the Internet somewhere, you're going to find us. Uh, these 66 podcasts. 66 is a number. Um, we usually will stay up to date posting when we when we have a new episode on our Twitter and Facebook. Um and also be sure to check out our website. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. And I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but you can now subscribe to us on the Google Play Music. Mm-hmm. So if you are a Google person and you have Google Music, you can find us in your podcast. Uh, we are in there now as well. Uh, again, we're glad you're listening to us. Uh, give us some feedback, and we'll be back um, in just a few days. With, Chapter 6, right? That's right. Conclude the book of First Timothy.